Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties? Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal? Welcome to the Chess Feels Podcast, the only chess podcast dedicated to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love. And hate. Tune in every week to join me, professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver, JJ Lang. And me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder, Julia Rios as we dive into our shared love for the game and attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessor. Why are we like this? Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember what we're talking about? Nope. I do. I think I do, but I have no idea. How convenient for you to forget that today is time for you, JJ Lang, to be a little bit vulnerable on this podcast for the first time. Fine. Fine. I'll share (laughs) what openings I play. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let's start there. What's your white rep these days? I don't want to talk about it. I plead the (laughs) fifth. Redacted. Redacted. So, JJ, we had talked about using today's episode for you to share what's coming up for you in the trust world, what your goals are, what your plans are, what's happening next in JJ world. Well, you know, as they say, new year, new Benoni. Snake Benoni? <laughs> no, any, not that. I wouldn't mind learning the check Benoni, actually. Did you see this man on Twitter? who shat on me because I posted about the Benoni in general and was like, you think the snake Benoni is good? You're going to move your bishop around that much? I'm going to crush you. And it was like, you need to relax on so many levels right Hard now. I disagree. I like the reading comprehension and the energy and think that together <laughs> those things will take him far. It was so much aggression about something that I hadn't said. It's like, okay, cool. You beat my snake Benoni that I don't play. I hope you feel big brain. No, it's going to be New Year's same Benoni, but the joke I was going for is New Year, new me. I'm going to take tournament chess seriously this year. I'm going to try and set a ratings goal for myself and modulate my behavior and decisions accordingly. Okay, so we actually hadn't really landed all that together, so I'm excited. I did know about your excitement and dedication towards taking rated tournament chess super seriously this year, which lights me up to even hear you say. But we hadn't really talked about for sure, JJ, you setting a ratings goal. Yeah, for sure. And this is a difficult one for me that I'm really excited to talk about because I think ratings goals in general are a distinct flavor of bullshit. And as such, I've been resistant to setting them for myself. Yeah. And almost from a not chess specific mindset, but as a clinical psychologist, I do think that outcome oriented or outcome specific goals tend to actually really hold people back. Or in the best case scenario, they're also just not necessary. So I think you might have to convince me mm-hmm. where a rating goal could really fit in. But no matter what, I'm just super excited about this year of chess for you. So let's start there. Actually, I'd love to hear you talk about some of the issues with outcome-related goals more generally. Yeah, we've talked about at least a little bit kind of what process goals are versus outcome-oriented goals. And I think it's actually very easy to sort of explain that quite briefly and succinctly. So if we have an outcome-oriented goal, We're really saying, here is what I want to happen. Here's the rating that I want to obtain. And that is the goal that I'm working towards. 
There's a lot of research that shows why sometimes that's actually not very effective or not very useful. So there have been entire research studies, research labs, dissertations, entire books dedicated to this idea that if instead we look at a more process-oriented approach to goal setting in which we say, okay, my goal might be to play this many chess games or to train chess in this way or to learn these things, people tend to actually have not only better outcomes, but they tend to also just enjoy the process more. They tend to stick with certain activities or certain hobbies more. There tend to be better consequences kind of across the board. And that makes a lot of sense that if you have fun, if you enjoy the the ride more than the destination, you'll enjoy it more. And that when you're enjoying something more, it might probably lead to better outcomes too. Yeah. And part of the reason why is that if we're setting a process-oriented goal, we have a lot of control over that. That is mm-hmm. something that we absolutely can wake up each morning and foreseeably achieve. At least it's possible. When it comes to a lot of the outcomes that we want to look at for goal setting, we can do everything within our control. We can work really hard. We can do the process. We can study. We can play all the chess in the world. We still won't have perfect control over what our rating looks like. And then that can create a lot of really difficult responses to doing what we set out to do and then not having the outcome that we wanted. So you can see all these ways that when we anchor our sense of success or achievement to this outcome, we're sort of setting ourselves up for failure. And those are hard things to control. If we anchor that sense of achievement and success or even identity to how we wake up and show up every day and the things that we're dedicating ourselves to in terms of our behavior, we are really setting ourselves up to feel a lot more fulfilled. So where I want this conversation to go, first I'll mention the things about readings, goals, and chess and why they're bullshit. Then I'll tell you why I'm setting one anyways. But then I'd love to hear more later about what it can look like to set these goals without anchoring, because I think I'm realizing already that's what I want is the way that I've avoided anchoring my chess progress around a rating goal is by not setting rating goals. But that would be like maybe, maybe arguably equivalent to like not setting research goals by not submitting things for publications. <laughs> totally. I hear you. And I already know exactly how I'm going to respond to everything you've just said and sort of answer that question. But I'm going to sit on my hands. I'm going to let you talk about how you've been thinking about rating throughout your career. And then I'll probably answer the question exactly the way that I intend to right now. Okay, great. So one reason why rating goals are bullshit is just the chess specific version of exactly what Julia was saying. It's a lot less fun to play chess when you're only cared about the rating and when you only care about the outcome. A really satisfying game where you get to try out some new ideas, apply something that you've learned, and play overall a game you're proud of, only to lose on time or lose on a mouse slip or lose on a blunder. All those things are just going to encode in your mind, essentially, as things that did not get you closer to your goal, things that actually subtracted from your goal. But then... You play a shitty game and you're on your process of chalking it off as a loss and then your opponent blunders mate and won. Maybe they were higher rated than you. Hell yeah, 12 points. Huge progress towards the goal right there. So even the way that you think about your own games will be determined a lot more by the result than the quality of your chess or even the attitude you had towards your chess while you were playing it. That's bad. Sure. Other more chess specific reasons that I think rating goals are bullshit is if somebody came to me and said, I want to maximize my understanding, appreciation, and love of chess this year. And someone else came to me and said, I want to maximize my rating gains this year. I would advise them to do different things. Yeah. 
And I don't just mean like how much time you spend or like whether you force yourself to do things that don't feel fun like that. But I might tell people who are really interested in getting their rating up, you should play like the simplest, easiest to understand opening repertoire possible. You should be pretty narrow, pretty basic, try to understand it really well. Depending on the rating range, I might tell them, here's some traps that a lot of your opponents will fall into that are relatively low risk to set, and you might be able to steal quite a few points playing it. And if somebody instead told me that they're trying to understand chess as well as they possibly can, I would maybe show them some of those trappy ideas, but I wouldn't advise that they build a repertoire around, hey, and maybe your opponent will fuck up and you'll steal a few points. And there's ways in which the way that I would advise somebody to help their rating goal would actually get in the way of, I think, them getting the most appreciation out of their chess and make them into a different Mm -hmm. kind of chess player. And this will come up again, but I think that if you want your rating to go up over the board, that's going to require playing a lot of over-the-board tournaments. So that might involve forcing yourself to show up even when you're tired. That might involve Mm -hmm. optimizing a lot of decisions based on anticipated result, based on whether this feels like a good time to play, whether this is a vibe you like. Yeah. And I'm smiling because this is so perfectly aligned with exactly how I was going to respond. And it's nice to see you drawing a lot of those same conclusions that I would have hoped you would. So it's cool to see your thought process. Excellent. Mm -hmm. I also think that my judgment of people who set rating goals, not you, listener, but everyone else, is that it's not that they're trying to get 100 points better at chess when they set a rating goal of getting their rating up 100 points. It's that they think they're a 1500 trapped in a 1400's body and that it's about time that their rating reflects that they're really a 1500 or really an 1800. And this definitely isn't true of everyone who sets rating goals, but there is a way of setting rating goals where the thought is, if I just play a lot, and keep doing what I've been doing, and more or less keep doing it the way I've been doing it, my rating will get there. And I just don't think that's true. (laughs) I think that you can play a lot of games of chess and spend a lot of time doing your chess studies the way you've always done it and be genuinely at a plateau. Yeah, definitely. Undeniably. And I think that's fine. But I think the idea of if I just keep doing what I'm doing, the rating will get there eventually is only true if either what you're doing is helping you improve, or you're genuinely underrated. If one of those two things is true, then yeah, your rating will eventually catch up to your true strength, either because your rating was wrong or your strength is growing. But if your rating's accurate and you're not doing much different than you've been doing it, there's no reason to think that your rating is going to change. Yep, absolutely. And so I do worry when I see a lot of people set goals in terms of rating rather than something more process-oriented, that they're expressing a belief in something like, I am a 1500 trapped in a 1200's body, and this is going to be the year that my rating reflects that, rather than I'm tired of being a 1200 who feels like they could be better, and this is going to be the year that I really figure out how to do the things that can get me to 1500 strength. So all of that said, I've never really wanted to set rating goals for myself as an adult. I also like rapidly improved when I got back into chess as an adult and then rapidly plateaued. Is that I don't think that's grammatical, but I think I think it's a good description of my chess, rapidly plateauing. Why not? That's an adverb and a verb. That works perfect syntactically. Yeah, syntactic it's grammatical. I guess it's not meaningful. It's like gibberish that's syntactically fine, colorless green ideas. I think even semantically it does make sense. Okay. You're describing I rapidly plateaued, 
almost like that deceleration as opposed to like a gentle decline that turns into a plateau. Mm. It was like I went up and then I plateaued fairly quickly. But that describes the descent into the plateau as rapid. I'm describing the plateau itself as rapid. <laughs> but I'm going to push back and and argue that that's not what you meant. I, I do think you meant like I improved very quickly. Mm-hmm. And then that improvement did not carry on for decades and decades. <laughs> I improved very quickly. And then I experienced the plateau, what felt very quickly. That's true. The Yeah, you're right. The slide into the plateau felt sudden. That My rating was going up at least a bit pretty much every time I played. And I genuinely did not know what my actual level was. And then when it started to plateau, I was like, that's fine. I'll keep putting in more work and then the rating will keep going up and I'll be 2200 in no time. And then that didn't happen. Yeah. Totally. Which is completely fine. But since then, my response has been, look, the ways to get your rating up are, like I was saying, one is to figure out how to game as many parts of the system as you can, play the openings that maximize your chances, play in a style that maximizes your chances, play the events that maximize your chances, and play as many of them as you possibly can, or get so much fucking better at chess that you're so drastically underrated that all you have to do is play occasionally and the points will come like clockwork. Right. Because I'm not going to do either of those things, I'm not going to set a rating goal. That's how I felt for the last few years. I'm not going to set a rating goal because I don't think that I'm a 2300 and a 2100 spotty. Right. And I also don't think that I'm going to tailor all of my energy and planning, et cetera, around maximizing expected point gains. But on the other side of it, let's not hide around this reality. I do like the idea of my rating going up. As does every chess player. Let's acknowledge that just because you don't say it out loud or have a specific goal deep down inside, we all want our rating to go up. Totally. I do like the idea of getting 100 points more over the board and having that title, which comes with sweet, sweet perks like a free premium membership for a website that has Puzzle Rush on it. (laughs) That sweet, sweet clout and access to Bennies. I'm 100% with you. I love Bennies, particularly Benny (laughs) Fischl. Love you, Ben. Some of it is I think I just want to say I am master. That would be cool. But also I think some of of it is I genuinely do believe I am better at my chess understanding and playing than I was three years ago when I first hit 2100. So wouldn't it be cool if I could have a rating that reflected that? And if I started to design some of my training and scheduling and planning around trying to make that happen, not because 2200 or bust, but because I think it really would reflect a lot of the work that I have put in and also is something that I would really like to happen. The other thing that is starting to creep in, and I kind of hinted at this, is just the ways in which chess understanding and winning a game of chess can come apart. And I think a lot of players don't appreciate this enough. Winning a game of chess is a skill, and it's a skill that is loosely correlated to understanding chess well. We could even say that it's closely correlated with understanding chess well, but it's not a one-to-one perfect correlation. I agree that it's not a one-to-one correlation. And I might say that it's not as close as you might think. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. So let's talk about a couple of ways that this happens. We understand that we outplayed our opponent in the opening well enough to understand that we have an advantage. And we understand positional chess well enough to understand how to grind that advantage. And then we don't convert. And then there can be somebody who plays fine, is slightly worse, then sets a pretty devilish trap in the endgame and wins. So depending on how scrappy and resilient you were 
as a trickster of a player. Yeah, you could be a lot better at chess, but that might not actually be translating to more wins. So I don't know. Am I so much better at chess than I was then that it will make up for a lot of the blissful ignorance that came from not realizing that I was kind of fucked early on and <laughs> just slashing around in a bad position and creating complications and getting pretty lucky? Yeah. And even with where you are now and your new insight and hindsight, can you still tap into that, like recognize the ways that that served you and bring that into your future chess? Yeah, sometimes. But sometimes it's a feature of the position itself where like if you're playing really principled chess, that might just guide you towards the type of position that gives you fewer Hail Mary chances. But the reason that you're getting into those positions is because you're making a very principled decision to play a different style of chess in the hopefully correct assumption that doing so will ultimately mean bigger rating gains. Yes, That's yes. how you lift the floor of your chest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't want to change doing that. I just mean that sometimes playing incredibly odd, complicated moves will force your opponent to take a whole lot of time to navigate it. And then even if sure. they're winning, they might have enough time to convert and then you can trick them. But if you're playing much better chess that should increase your winning chances overall, you might yeah. be giving your opponent fewer opportunities to blunder, fewer opportunities to get into time trouble, etc. So there are ways right. in which like being an absolute fucking idiot can have short-term benefits. And so it's just harder to tap into swindle mode when you're not playing like an idiot the whole way. And I don't know if I was even saying specifically tapping into swindle mode, but I think there's parts of that style of play that you certainly can utilize. Mm -hmm. Especially the part where you said, I almost just didn't understand well enough to know when I was totally fucked that I would just keep sloshing around. So, okay, well, why was that helpful? I mean, I really understand this in the sense of something I've talked about on the pod before, which is when I feel like I am in hot water and I don't have a winning chance, how quick I am to resign a game or just sort of give up and not want to play. And there really is something to the fact that in during the times where I've made a very intentional effort to say, I'm just going to try to grind this out as best as I can. Like, let's just see what happens. I will literally win games. I can blunder my queen and I have won the game. So I, I think I'm just trying to tap into something else. I gotcha. Um, no, I think, I think I'm totally with you now. I think an analogy there is if I know my opening lines well enough to know that I must have misplayed something and I'm in a worse position and I let that influence the decisions I make from there, then I am far less likely to claw back or yeah. and but if instead I don't realize that I've made an error or I don't know how much of an error it is, I'm a lot more likely to be to not realize that according to a book, according to Stockfish, maybe the world is burning around me. And there's a sense in which sometimes not seeing that can help you play better chess. Yeah. I totally buy totally. that. Yeah. Yeah. There are probably times where like understanding that the world is burning could be helpful too. I've definitely played games where if I realized I spent a lot of time and ultimately decided to not play a risky sacrifice. And if I realized my position was shit, then I would have happily played that sacrifice in five seconds. And it would have been cool to just know that I had, I guess, that permission to do that. And a lot of the times the ways people convince themselves of that are ways in which like there's a lot of play left if they just don't follow that narrative. Right. And so then my question would be like, what are the ways that we can hold on to both of those things where you have the insight and you can see when the house is actually on fire or at least be able to smell the smoke? And then even if you do smell the smoke, 
hold on to that resolve of like, okay, I'm going to keep sloshing around because if I just hit the resign button, I know for sure that I've lost. So how can I maybe hold on to both of those things? No, I love this. And I actually have a response. I suggested this to one student once and he was like, I'll never do that. But something I do for myself is I have this policy that if I realize that I'm starting to just like be resigned in my head, play fast, not try very hard, think that I'm lost, that if I start to catch that, my policy is I have two options. Either I resign on the spot or I get up, I walk around, I try and clear my head and force myself to approach things as if I'm not in this hopeless position and basically say you're not allowed to play as if it's all lost. If you genuinely believe all is lost, you have to resign. And sometimes my response is, okay, cool, I'm down to queen, I'll just resign. But other times my response is, wait, no, I don't want to give up yet. Then it's like, okay, then why are you acting like it? <laughs> I love this because yeah. we all talk all the time about like, don't play hope chess. Okay, mm -hmm. well, don't play hopeless chess either. Hey, there's a t-shirt. Yeah. I really like that. Don't play hopeless <laughs> chess. Anyways, what openings do we... Wait, oops. I've spent too many hours studying the Benoni this week to say don't play hopeless chess with a straight face. <laughs> it doesn't feel hopeless. It feels so fun. But okay, cool. I love this. So here we are, 2022. Nope. So here we are, 2023. And I really want to try and set a rating goal for the year just because I think having some sort of time frame of I want to be putting enough work in to where I can see this being possible and I want to prioritize travel planning etc to where I could see it being possible and something that does feel good about that for me is living in a place that doesn't have a lot of tournaments and where a lot of the tournaments they have don't have a lot of players who are higher rated than me has two problems for rating improvement one problem is you have to be really, really, really consistent in order to gain points. And the other problem is it's hard to actually get better at chess when you're not consistently playing people who are better than you. So traveling more for chess, basically, is something that feels necessary in order to improve my rating in a way that it didn't when I lived somewhere that had a lot more tournaments with much stronger competition. Of course. Yeah, that all makes perfect sense. And then the thought is, well, if I'm going to be traveling more for chess, that's going to take more time, money, resources. And it does feel like I have more of that this year than I had in the past and that I might have in the future. But we're not getting any younger and the earth isn't getting any cooler. Oh, God. No, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine, people. It's, it's fine. fine. It's fine. So, so why not, right? Like, why not do it now? But then I'm thinking, okay, so I want to travel to play tournaments. Do I want to make these decisions based off of what? Where it's cheapest to travel to, where I have friends, where I get the sense that the level of competition might be stronger or weaker. For instance, things like, are there a lot of players on their rating floor there versus are there a lot of kids who are likely to be underrated up and comers? And which of these decisions do I really want to start factoring into, into that? And then relatedly, how does the way I look at chess and study chess, how does that change if I have a tournament coming up versus not or versus several tournaments back to back? And how does everything relate to that? And so my hope is that I can really make these decisions and change my behavior in a way that can help me play better chess and have more opportunities to play better chess in a way where if I play better chess, my rating will go up. 
but it doesn't feel like it's 2200 or bust or if the number goes down it's a failure or or things like that but i would love to talk more about what i can do to not get sucked into only caring about the numbers or not start making decisions only about the numbers or not just having my mood or evaluation of my chess only be based on the numbers yeah i I mean it's kind of spooky to me almost like how perfectly everything you said JJ maps on to exactly what I was going to say about how to use these types of goals, which is to say, at this point, based on everything you've said, I I think you're thinking about that goal actually very, very well. So I feel like, in a sense, I do want to add a lot more nuance to this idea of how do we think about outcomes and goals in terms of our planning. That sounds really useful. And so uh, a caveat that I was going to add before we got too deep into the conversation, but that I'll add now, is that that doesn't mean that we don't have outcomes that are goals. It's not that there aren't things that we don't want to happen or that we don't want to achieve. Of course we do. And it's actually really important to know what those are so that when we are creating our processes and our systems and our planning, we are moving towards that goal. Of course, we want to know what those things are. I love, JJ, that you are at a spot in your career where you can say very confidently, I want to hit 2200 and I want to be a national master. I want that for you so badly. I want the lowest title there is in any form of chess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for now, right? We would both be so full of shit if we said, oh, well, we don't even have those goals at all. Of course we do. So when I'm working with my clients on how we think about goal setting and how we start to create a more process-oriented strategy, essentially, yes, we identify what are the goals in the perfect world. What would you want to achieve? You want to write a bestseller. Cool. Great. You want to get a Fulbright scholarship. Amazing. Then what we're going to do is we're going to create a process towards that goal. And once we've done that, we're going to totally forget about the goal. So what I'm talking about, what are we anchored in? Mm -hmm. That's really what I'm saying. What are we moving towards? What's your micro goal for that day? If your goal is, okay, today I am going to raise my rating by 10 ELO, there might not be any games to play. There might be nothing that could accomplish that near you in your context. There are certainly training things that you could be doing that move you towards that goal. So essentially, that was the the nuance that I was really hoping to add that I would like to add now, which is we really do want to identify what those things are, mm-hmm. but we don't want to be anchored to them. We then want to create the process that can move us towards the goal or the goals, and then that becomes our focus. And we will do our best to literally throw the goal out the window. We'll talk about it again next year, but we don't want to wake up every morning thinking about how do I inch myself closer to that outcome? That makes it actually really difficult to achieve progress. I love that. I love that as a synthesis of kind of what have felt like two very different approaches for me, because at first it felt like, look, you know, I have successfully thrown the rating goals out the window and I have my processes, whatever they are. And then after a couple of years of that not resulting in rating gains for totally understandable reasons, pandemic moving other jobs, et cetera, just say, okay, I think I'm at a point where the processes I have for how I study chess, the processes I have for when I play and where I play are not going to result in ratings gains. And so I'm down to like reconsider what these processes can look like. But now 
you're right that with that, it felt like now I need to focus on the reading. And what I'm hearing you say is, no, now go back to the attitude you already had and this should be working well. And I think that everything that you've said makes such perfect sense because frankly, in the context that you were in, in light of the COVID pandemic, moving to Nebraska, like what were the resources around you? What kind of chess were you able to play? Having a readings-oriented goal would have been like banging your head against the wall. Like the opportunities to grow in your rating in that way weren't necessarily there in the most convenient way that where you wouldn't have had to sacrifice other things in your life that were really important to you. Mm-hmm. Whereas by reorienting your focus and your goal setting to I'm going to build my chess knowledge, my skill, my expertise as much as I can and totally put a pause on how much I'm thinking about or focused on the rating that really helped you grow in your chess game. Mm -hmm. But what I hear you saying now in 2023, I'm ready to reorient. I'm ready to make those opportunities happen. And now my rating is becoming more relevant again. And I think that that is a kind of psychological flexibility that will really help you kind of move in and out of the goals that are more relevant and more optimal and more effective for your chess career. Yeah, I I really like that. I really like that way of framing it. And then I think I just want to add too is that not only is coming out of it do I feel like I'm ready to reorient the goals, but it also feels like for various reasons life is ready and I think it's worth kind of centering yeah. for a second some of the contextual factors that often get ignored in the hashtag adult improver conversations. Exactly. So, for one, the impetus for this starting was when spouse of the podcast, Amelia, and her family got me a Christmas gift of a little stash of cash to help travel to play more chess with the hope of getting more opportunities to get my rating to go up. And it was this incredibly kind gesture of like, we know that you haven't been able to play as much since you moved here and play as much in the ways that you want to. And hopefully this will help give you some opportunities. And that was really exciting. But then that led to conversations with Amelia where She's saying, you know, like, why haven't you just like set a goal of I want to reach this rating by this certain amount of time? And one of the things I said was, well, I think I'd have to play and travel a fuck ton more for that to feel even slightly within my control. And she said, well, do you want to do that? And I was like, oh, I guess I haven't really thought about that. And so this encouragement and in a sense, kind of permission almost is not something that everyone always has from their family or that I felt like I've had all the time. And Additionally, one of the reasons I said yes was moving into a space where I was entirely self-employed to a space where I, depending on when we release this, may or may not have a full-time job, means, oh, the thought of traveling for a weekend means those tournaments that are always on holiday weekends where I'd have to give up several days of teaching income in order to travel are now like, oh, a couple days where I already have PTO or can take a holiday or something to travel Those are just shifts that happen to be happening right around the start of the new year that are now making me think, yes, the thought of traveling to play these events more frequently does seem a lot more tangible than it did even a few months ago. And so I can make that reorientation, not just because I've decided my chest has grown enough or I've decided that I'm ready to make the plunge. It's just like, you know, a lot of circumstances have changed that do feel possible that could very easily have not felt possible. Like, I don't know how I would have responded to the question if it felt more financially precarious. Maybe, but also maybe not. I definitely would want to resist the idea that it's only a question of, you know, do you want it bad enough (laughs) or something like that, right? Yeah. And that was just exactly what I was nodding to when I basically said, I think that you 
were actually very savvy and thinking about what was most beneficial for you in like the overall context, you know, for the past few years. And that now it sounds like you're ready to potentially sort of reorient uh, what your focus is. Let's call me after I like get made in like 12, 20 moves against like a 1500 eight year old. <laughs> but the idea is that if you're playing lots of chess, that matters a lot less. Yeah, but it feels feel bad. I don't know. I, I mean, do. sure. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> it, it feels bad, but you're saying, oh, ask me after. Mm. And I've seen you get back rank mated by a 1300 and get right back on that saddle, JJ. So I don't know. I, I'm not necessarily going to buy into the narrative that the first time you get your butt kicked by an underrated nine-year-old, you're going to regret <laughs> the reorientation. Well, thanks for bringing that up, Julia. Yeah, I just wanted that on the record for all of our listeners. But he wasn't underrated and he was an adult. Okay. It doesn't make it better. I know. We'll just let it sit there. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that something that I would love to come back to at a couple points during this journey is, first of all, I'd love to maybe have something like a monthly check-in where we do kind of see how the goals are going or what sorts of tweaking we'd want to do. Right. And I'm I'm interested in doing something a little bit different, which might just be what you're saying and a semantics thing, but I would like to revisit how the process is working yes. and like what your systems are and if you feel like they're serving you and actually not on a monthly basis, like checking in on the goals. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Right. Like, I don't want to know what your, I don't want to see how your rating is changing every no, month because no. I don't think that's a useful metric. I do want to see what kind of things you're working on, how engaged you felt in doing that, how useful you feel like they are, how effective you feel like they are, how much you've been able to really dedicate yourself to those and then make shifts if we need to, which is different than saying, let's revisit the goals and the progress. I'm not as interested gotcha. in either of those things. Yeah. That that's helpful. That's definitely what I had in mind, but it's really helpful to make that distinction. And I was also thinking, you know, depending on who's listening, we have a lot of listeners and probably non-listeners who often volunteer themselves as guests. And it's frankly really weird when people do that. But this could be a great opportunity for some titled players and coaches who have experience here to maybe oh, yeah. provide some free labor for the pod. <laughs> I mean, don't you want your name attached to when JJ Lang of the Chess Feels podcast makes master? Come on. Don't you want to take a little credit? I think that'd be great. We really should make a call for that on Twitter, et cetera. But I think that'd be really cool. And if anyone is listening to this and wants to be part of helping with that process planning or just coming on the pod and talking about the things that you think of with your students or when you're training that help you really make those kind of big jumps in chess skill... We would love to have you on. Because look, you know, you haven't been buying a lot of shirts. You haven't been donating to the Buy Me a Coffee. You haven't been pulling your weight, listeners. So this is a really good <laughs> opportunity for you to give back to us. I feel, JJ, like you're kind of in wrap-up mode, but we never really got to the thing that I wanted to do for the majority of this episode. Perfect. We're there. Cool. Which was based on the acknowledgement that that is your goal for this year essentially, eventually, to climb in your rating. And I want to be moving at least towards 2200 and a national title. What do you imagine your process could look like? I really was excited to kind of brainstorm that with you. And that yeah. was how I wanted to really spend some of our time today. Well, I'm really excited to brainstorm that with you too. And I think you correctly spotted that I was trying to deflect maybe subconsciously because it does still feel like a black box a little bit. 
Cool. I have this thought right away of, I know all the things that I could be better at, and I know all the things that I've seen recommended that people could try and do on their chests. And the thought of unpacking that to where do I start is very difficult. Or one thing that is happening right now is an easy thing to do is drill and cram openings because there's always stuff you can memorize and you can always do that while you're like watching TV. And so mm. to just really pour the energy into that because it's very tangible, it's time consuming, and then you can say that you've done something and kind of punted the question of what are you actually doing for your chess? So I think that's my current struggle. <laughs> okay. So that's like the thing that's more obvious on your list already is, yeah, you can look at your openings, you can practice and study them, you can drill your chessable cue all day, all night. And it needs work. I'm not wrong that it needs work. I just I can definitely see already the temptation to use that to mask the fact that I don't even know what the rest of that list looks like. Yeah, totally. I love that. So let's let's take a couple of minutes. Let's like think mm -hmm. about it. Let's just spitball because I think it could actually be really useful for other people or for myself to hear what it's like to actually work through, through that thought process yeah. and not just see like the golden quote unquote list that comes out at the end but you know like just even how are you thinking about it like what really is the thought process behind how you get there to making a quote unquote study or training plan like yeah how how's the how's the yogurt made what do they say yeah yeah you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube here's a different question Mm -hmm. If I was telling you, JJ, that I wanted to improve my chess skill, mm -hmm. or I could use a different one of your students that I know has like made pretty big leaps yeah. and is now at maybe a new plateau. So I want you to think about your student. What would you recommend to somebody else who wanted to make almost that quantum leap in either their chess rating or more fundamentally their chess knowledge and their chess level? Yeah. I mean, I think that... But that's great. And I love, by the way, your suggestion of if thinking about what to do for yourself is hard. Like imagine what you would do <laughs> thinking about how you advise for other people. That is a lot easier. So I think the first thing I would say is figure out where you're getting stuck and let's find ways together to get unstuck there. So for instance, with a student who's plateaued, around 1700, what we were doing was I was just watching him calculate challenging tactical exercises out loud. And as he was calculating them, I was just making a note of what he focused on that was not just wrong, but misguided or what he skipped over that ended up being right. And really just kind of open-ended to see what conclusions we could draw after an hour of that. And the biggest thing that we found that was really funny for both of us was he was really quick to discount a lot of his own forcing moves. Like if he didn't see the immediate payoff, he wouldn't spend a lot of time taking them seriously. But then when considering his opponent's resources, he would be really quick to assume that his opponent would play the most forcing move and not spend a lot of time looking for quiet alternatives. So it's this very strange thing where where we're just able to name, oh, wow, the lens that you're looking at your moves for and the lens that you're looking for your opponent's moves for are different. That is going to affect <laughs> your play and your evaluation and your everything. So now let's really practice. I mean, quite literally, like, can you 
take a few key moments of every game you play and write down afterwards what your candidate moves are for you and for them and explicitly ask, are they lining up? Am I applying the same kind of process to both of these? Okay, look at how beautifully you did that for a student. So now I'm going to turn it back towards you. What does that kind of tell you about yourself in your own chess game? Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that I can do or actually had already done is send some of my games to a teacher for, I don't know if we will disclose the secrets on the on the pod. <laughs> we Time will reveal all things. JJ has a secret mini chess coach right now. Unrelatedly, we have a secret mini chess guest coming up in a future episode. <laughs> Relatedly. <laughs> yeah. But and say, okay, basically, what do you see in these games? Like, what do you see and get that feedback? And the main feedback I got was surprising to me. And this, I think, will come up a lot in that episode because I consider myself a much more patient player than I used to be. But having a much stronger player show me the ways in which a lot of the decisions I was making were impatient. And so as a result, now when I play rapid games, even online, I try and stop afterwards and look back at a few points of were there moves that I didn't even consider committal moves that were more committal than I realized. Because I used to think of committal moves as like pawn pushes because they can't go backwards in trades because they can't come off the board. But then realizing that, oh, even shifting a couple of pieces to the king side does mean letting up control of the center or the queen side. So if I do that and then get rocked in the center later, I can call those kingside shifting moves committal, which is not a way I would have thought of them before. So doing that kind of survey for that and then really trying to go through, I've gotten as far as ordering and reading the first game of players who are known for skills in being more flexible and patient, so like Kramnik and Karpov and going through those games. Okay. I'm just going to point out how annoying you are. That we started this conversation of like, I don't even want to think. It's hard for me to even think or conceptualize like what those steps might be. Mm -hmm. But not only did you do that so beautifully, I already see all the steps you've taken towards this really incredible and like hard to hard to conceptualize goal of, okay, I really need to see where the holes are in my game and figure out where I'm stuck. That's really hard to do for ourselves because there's all these blind spots. So I'm going to recruit a much stronger player to give me some lessons and help me do that and review my games with me. And then not only that, JJ, but then you've already taken that information and so kind of automatically created the steps towards sort of plugging those holes in your game. Okay, I'm going to study grandmasters and start compiling games and looking at games that actually really utilizes the fundamental skill. And I'm going to start playing rapid games where my goal for the rapid game is specifically to start playing in this different way and like trying to really kind of quantify like how I can look at that and practice that on a daily basis. You've just taken this goal and broken it down into all these beautiful mini micro steps in such a beautiful way. This is like exactly what I would hope to be doing with a client in therapy. And you're just already nailing it. I know that's only one of many goals towards, you know, your overall rating goal. But just to say in this one example, you've just you're just executing it so beautifully already. Well, I really appreciate you saying that. And I'm also thinking, okay, yeah, why did I say that I have no idea where to begin if it's clear that I've also already started doing this work? So I think that's a really interesting question that some listeners might relate to as well. One thing that I actually struggle with is 
just this feeling of wanting to look at the outcome to determine whether it's working. And while I haven't played a single tournament since I started doing this, so knowing that I've certainly felt like my chess comprehension was improving without it being reflected in my rating for several years, it's tempting to feel like, yeah, well, until I see that number go up, it doesn't feel like it's working or like, I know this is what I should be doing, but it doesn't feel like enough as judged by the outcome. I think that's one one piece of it. Totally. And exactly. And that is one of the very well articulated, beautiful reasons why once we establish what the goal is and start to build that process, it is so important to literally throw the goal out the window. Like these are all the ways that hold us back. Exactly what you just described. It can make us feel so deflated and honestly really chip away at our resolve or our confidence in the system when we feel so anchored to looking at the numbers. And so I think that's a beautiful example. Great. And and, and I think saying that out loud was really helpful. And I, th- I think the other one is that a lot of the things I described are just hard to work up the energy to do. And while I've done them a couple of yes. times, I haven't done any of them with the regularity that I hoped to. And the thought of developing some sort of real rigid system where I'm charting off how much time I spend on each of these things a day has never been a way that I've approached tasks or goals. I don't find it very rewarding. I find it just very off-putting. And so maybe the other thing I was trying to say was, I know as far as what I should be doing, and even once I can name that, I see how doing it will help me, even if that number doesn't go up. It still feels... Well, I mean, maybe the first thought is it still feels like I'm not doing it enough, where enough is that funny word where no, we've never specified what enough means. We've just said that it doesn't feel like I'm doing it enough. But it also just feels like there's long stretches of time where the second it feels like I'd have to start pushing myself to find the energy to do it because I'm tired or what have you, or I'd rather just play Puzzle Rush on my phone. I just don't do anything and only and only do the candy instead. And I think maybe that's the part where I feel like I've seen the models for the hyper-disciplined douchebag and I don't want to be that. And I don't always, I don't feel like I have a handle on how to do more of the things I've identified that would be genuinely good without just changing who I am as a person. What a beautiful, beautiful thing for you to articulate and say out loud on this podcast that I think so many people listening will relate to. And then I am so excited to watch you figure out how to do exactly what you've just said, JJ. I don't quite know how to do yet. I hear you saying right now, I know that at least on some level, consciously or implicitly, I am thinking about this in a very black and white way where I am either like so fully dedicated to this rigorous schedule and plan and posting my progress in this way that feels very douchey to me. Mm-hmm. versus I am just sort of letting myself completely go with the flow and do what feels like the mode of least resistance or like whatever feels fun at the time. And I want so much of that for you. And that is why setting the goal originally is so important. If your goal is just to kind of improve your chest and have a good time and stay engaged, we're going to do way more of the candy. If mm-hmm. you're telling me on January 1st of 2023 This year, I really want to feel more dedicated and I want to increase my chest performance and I want to increase my chest rating. There are going to be times where you are going to have to push yourself and do the thing that feels hard. That's a fact. So that's why it's so important for us to really sort of consecrate 
what is the direction that we're going in. And I'm really excited also, JJ, to think about all the ways that that has a beautiful balance. There is a middle ground. This is not black or white. What will that look like? What feels good for you? And what is sort of your optimal dose in that curve? Let's find that together. And one conversation I had the other day with my therapist, sorry, my other therapist. I was literally about to be like, I don't remember that conversation (laughs) before I even heard what it was, but go on. I was thinking about, okay, well, the thought of setting goals of like spend this much time doing these sorts of things, no matter what feels disgusting. But the thought of like, could I, what are some more process oriented things I could log such as not caring about how many tactics I solve that day, how much I read or what I do. But if I'm doing anything related to chess that day and anything jumps out to me as interesting or surprising or related to the goals I'm working on, can I keep a little journal where I just like write down, oh, here's a thought I have. And like the thought of being able to look back after a week or a month at all of these observations I've had of something that wasn't immediately obvious to me or that I had to work to understand feels really satisfying in a way that isn't tied to because I did my 30 minutes every day, because I did my 10 master games every day. And it's just tied to like, I'm doing, I'm doing what I'm doing, (laughs) but I'm making a point to like log and not just like enjoy in the moment and then forget and then have to relearn again tomorrow. (laughs) The same things I think feels satisfying to me. That's, That's a start. Yeah. Right off the bat, I love that. I really do. And I'm like ready to sign off on that. And before before I co-sign the permission slip for this field trip, I do want to push you just a little bit. And I just want to ask you, what is it about acknowledging or thinking about setting a more structured time goal to say like, okay, each week I want to spend this much time studying Grandmaster games or doing tactics whatever you really identify would push you forward in your chess game. The word you used was that feels so disgusting to me. What feels so gross about that to you? Where is your aversion? Yeah, I'll be really excited to see what your response to this is. Because to me, I think the best I could pinpoint it is it relates to the conversation we had on the ADHD episode about set shifting. Okay. I find it very difficult to slide in and out of the deep work that I want to be doing in those moments and the mindset that it requires to be fully focused on those things for short amounts of time. Like if I budget an hour here or there to do that, I'll often spend that full hour trying to focus in. And if I get there, it's really hard to pull out after an hour. And I, at least as of now, don't lead the kind of life where I often feel like I have full half day size chunks to do those sorts of things. So I feel stuck between the only way I know how to show up in the way that I would need to to do this stuff is use large uninterrupted chunks of time I don't have. Yeah. And if I set shorter time and say, well, just do 30 minutes a day, I find that's the part that's disgusting to me because I find so much mental resistance to doing that. Yeah. And it's just so deflating and totally. Yeah, to to feel like I just can't get there in the time that I've allotted. And that's the same yeah. experience I had trying to write a dissertation where if doing those little chunks every day, it's fine when it's the grunt work or turning an outline that you've already done into a paragraph or summarizing an article, but doing the deep work of articulating a thought for the first time in 30-minute chunks, most days no words get written. 
Absolutely. I I mean, as someone who actually experiences something very similar to you, JJ, I just so instantaneously like understand everything you're saying. And I know you said that you're kind of curious or excited to hear how I would respond. And I am not sure how much you'll like how I'm going to respond. Not that it really matters, but I'm going to tell you. I forgive you. <laughs> I'm going to tell you my very authentic reaction because it just feels so strongly. And it's like, it would be hard for me to say something different, honestly. When I hear you say what you've just said, the thing that makes me feel so excited, like you and I talk about like chasing that feeling, mm -hmm. that deep work is what will get you to 2200, mm -hmm. is what will substantially improve your chest ceiling and your chest floor. I want to see you do the deep work. I want to see you hyper-focus. I want to see like you light that spark like i want to see the chess obsession what would it look like for this year to actually not feel an aversion or anxiety about letting yourself enter that deep work and actually making space in your life isn't that what this year is about like mm. where could we build that in yeah no i absolutely love you saying that and i liked the way that you described it as the spark in chess obsession because i think that's what it is is i think the thought of like taking an evening where I'm done around six or seven and saying, I have a solid four hour chunk to just dive into chess then if I want to use it. My first response is, but I'm tired. But so the thought is, okay, so how can I reframe that as here are the things that I want to do that genuinely the thought of getting to do them, it feels like that. It feels like I'm getting to do them instead of have to do yeah. them. And I think that I might require being more specific about what exactly it is that this work is going to look like. Because I can so totally think of, for instance, I found a book that gives a lot of great examples. So what is it? Mastering Positional Chess by Helston has a lot of really nice examples, moves in almost every example where one player has found the plan, has committed to the plan, and then plays a couple flexible moves that don't really accelerate the plan, but also don't get in the way of it. And seeing example after example of that and actually recognizing it for, oh, that's what Redacted Chess Coach was talking about, is like, it's really exciting to find those. And so the thought of spending a few hours really diving into that and keeping a study of that excites me in a way that studying chess for four hours doesn't. So I think that's really... That where it is. It doesn't surprise me at all. Because yeah. I hear the way you talk about chess and I see the way you think and you act when you are in that flow state. We have done that together, JJ, and I see the way that it lights you up. So I had so many responses to what you said. I'll try to remember at least the best or most important ones. So the first thing I'll say is that was kind of what I almost heard you potentially saying when you were describing that aversion to the time commitment or like the deep flow state mm. was almost potentially the thing that I would ask you around if I were your therapist is to explore is there almost a fear of if I turn this nozzle if I turn this flow on is it going to be a fire hydrant <laughs> like it's hard for me to set shift and it feels scary to like let myself get sucked into mm. this thing mm-hmm is there an aversion to that? Yes. We can we can talk about that and explore that. And then the other piece of the puzzle was I was going to say, I totally understand that feeling of, oh, I'm tired. The idea of doing this thing that's hard doesn't feel great to do right now. And I think all things that are hard feel like that. But there is also something about how it feels to think about doing it versus how it feels to be doing it versus how it feels to have done it. Mm -hmm. And I think if you are anything like me, sometimes the thought of doing something feels very tiring. To be doing something feels 
effortless and I feel totally sucked in and mm-hmm. to have done it feels amazing. So those are three totally different states and how can we start to kind of compartmentalize those? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a wonderful way of framing it. And I think for me, part of it is if I just know that what I quote have to do is do hard work on chess, then that focus is on the tiring part. But when I think of it more as here's exactly what I get to do, then it's a lot easier to get into the headspace of knowing how it's going to feel doing it and having done yes. it. Yes, because imagining doing the specific thing feels different than the nebulous mm-hmm. thing of, oh, chess study is hard, which is true. That's why building the process can be so important because then you get the opportunity to say, here are all the things that I know will bring me closer to the goal. Here's what the process will look like. And then you have those specifics. You have the list to pull from. So when you're kind of tired and you're like, what would chess study look like tonight? That actually can sometimes be the hardest cognitive work is almost remembering what the fucking steps are. When you have the list, it is so much easier to recognize them than it is to recall them. And you can pull from the list and that spark gets sparked much sparkier. That resonates so much. And I think maybe what I'm taking away from this is, oh, okay. It's not that I have resistance to like a training plan. It's that the way that I would conceptualize the plan would be like do X tactics, or it might be like, make sure you're dedicating X hours a week of reading master games. And like, that sounds taxing. But if the thought is, okay, these collections or these games as recommended by these people focus on these themes that you've identified as being weaknesses that you need to focus on. And that's already picked out for you. Then the thought of, I get to see how Karpov handled this problem feels a lot different than I have to do this work. So the issue isn't having a goal of spending X hours a week on master games. The issue is, is having a list that actually says these are the things that are picked out for this reason with more specificity definitely makes me feel more excited to get to do them instead of more like I have to do them. So you're right. It feels like the exhaustion is feeling like after a day of planning other people's chess progress, I have to do the work of planning my own too and figure out what that even is. It'll That's never the happen. Turnoff. That's the turnoff. You're I, right. Yeah. And I can yeah. tell you right now, it'll never ever happen, even for things that are actually really easy and that we love. I literally am telling my clients to do self-care. And if at the end of the day, they need to decide what that self-care is and do it 100% of the time, they will absolutely not do it. If they and I sit down together in a therapy session and make a list and they start to get excited, like, oh, right, taking a bubble bath with all of my favorite shampoos and candles that smell good sounds amazing. And they just have a list in front of them. The odds that they'll do it go through the roof. And then when they do it, it feels amazing. It doesn't feel tiring. There really is so much to that very intentional pre-planning. Yeah, Let's make it easy for us in the future. It is a fundamental game changer. I can really tell you that much. Yeah, I I completely see that. And I, and I see that in other parts of my life too. Like yeah. if, if, I, if I have, I know that if I'm tired and I'm cooking for myself, like say Amelia is out, then if I, if I haven't thought about what I wanted to eat or made a plan or something, the odds of just like, either not eating or getting takeout I don't really like or just having a really, really hastily put together like fried egg on a tortilla or something start to go up. But if I had thought earlier of even maybe getting ingredients, but maybe even just thinking, what are some things I'd want to try to make when I actually had the energy to do that? Then I find myself going through the day being like, hey, when I'm done with work, I get to try and figure out how to make this chickpea flour crap using this chickpea flour that's been sitting around for too long. 
instead of like, I don't know what the fuck I want to do. And then just. Why do you have chick flower? Oh, because. No, don't answer that. I don't care. I literally don't care. I don't want to know. <laughs> Chili Rienas. <laughs> uh, my idea was what if i made chili rellenos with like a pakora type breading okay but i'm not wrong <laughs> i'm on board <laughs> and also it just seems so obvious right once we say it we mm-hmm. don't wait for our reserves to be super low to say now i'm gonna do a lot of critical thinking when our reserves are low that's when we want to rely on a foundation that we've already built and we want to coast. I, I, we want to build the mountain when we have the energy and we want to coast down it. That make, And that makes a lot of sense when you say it out loud. I also want to add that something else that's also clicking is I've definitely had the experience, probably certainly high school, but probably college too, of, no, of course, I don't want to wait till my reserves are super low to do the deep work. But also, that's how us procrastinators did our work through most of high school and college. We kind of did wait until the last minute. So there is something about like associating this deep work with exhaustion because I've had this anxiety response of putting off this thing for so long. And it was only once it had to be done that the anxiety and adrenaline fueled me to meet the deadline. And yeah. And that is also why like creating systems of accountability and sort of micro goals for those processes and those systems can also be really helpful. Let's build that anxiety in. <laughs> that anxiety lights the fire and moves you forward and mm. doesn't hold you back. Let's find let's find ways to make it feel that way. Accountability is a real thing. So let's think creatively and how could it feel like you have deadlines when the truth of the matter is you're an adult JJ who is not a professional chess player. If you don't create those deadlines, there will not be any deadlines. And that's a fact. So that actually ties into the one last thing that I wanted to talk about. I wanted to ask your expert opinion. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, the Bononi. Sorry, what was the question? Oh, that was it. Uh, okay, great. Bye, guys. <laughs> one, one. The question was, what should I tweet about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, am I going to be one of those people who, like, is tweeting the work they did every day? Is it, or am I going to be tweeting the results of my tournaments? Am I going to be tweeting nothing? I have such a strong opinion about this. Yes. But what's your gut feel? Like, is this something that you've already thought about deeply? No, I just thought that I'd be really excited to hear your reaction. I think, well, what my one one gut feel is I think that holding myself accountable to posting the results of each of my events sounds antithetical to this yeah. goal you've set of throwing the rating goal out the window once you've set it. Like, it sounds like that's a really easy way to get sucked into Focusing on the outcome is holding yourself accountable to sharing the outcome numbers. Like totally. And that will shape your behavior. Yeah. Like if you're telling yourself, okay, this is what I do. I always post the results. That might make us not want to play in certain tournaments if we feel like our chance of our rating going up isn't very high. Like that will really actually impact the decisions that we're making, which might be, like you said, antithetical to the goal. So I'm glad that you're recognizing that. And once we're playing, it can even shape our behavior in-game. I think enemy of the pod, Gopal Menon, has used the phrase with me before of the writing the victory speech, I think is his phrase, where like a game's going so well. And like you're almost like already crafting the tweet in your head about the game before the game is done. That 
is 1 million percent true. I love it. And I mean, yeah. I've, I've been, and it's not like that it's going to always go away, but it does make sense that if you're literally going to have to craft the tweet after the game, <laughs> that it went so well, it's probably going to be harder to avoid crafting the tweet in your head during the game. Yeah. I want to do something totally different. Okay. Unless I hear you telling me, which I don't hear you saying right now, it is so important for me to share this with my chess community through Twitter. Like Twitter is my platform where I like to be really vulnerable. I don't see you tweeting that way. And I don't hear you saying that. We could at least imagine or start to consider the possibility, JJ, of what if we absolutely do not tweet about this or don't need to tweet about this. We don't really need kind of like that external validation or accountability in that way, which like you said, is really tied to these outcomes. Mm -hmm. And it can feel really good to share progress and goals. Like when you achieve it, sure, do it. But let's also recognize that Twitter as a platform does not lend itself as easily to sort of the nuance or complexity of the process. And also, I just heard you sort of have this real kind of like gut aversion to people who are really actually using social media in that way. Like, oh, I'm going to post, I, I do tactics or I do this many games each day and I'm going to post about it in this very like externally validating way. Mm. What if instead we did what you already said you'd like to do? What if we use the podcast, which has a lot of nuance and we get to talk about it in the way that we want to talk about it? We have a full hour, not 140 characters or what the fuck ever. And then instead of you thinking, pre-crafting the victory tweet about the outcome or the game or the points, then in your head, you know we're talking about the fucking process. Mm-hmm. And for that month, I want you to be thinking, what am I going to talk about on the podcast? What's the process I've been doing? I actually want you to be creating that narrative because I want you to be thinking about what would it feel good to report? I want you to have accountability. What are the things that at the end of the month I would like to actually share that I did? And I think that could actually have a really positive impact on your thinking about how you're spending your time. Um, I love that and I'm on board. And I think the only thing that I want to yes and to that is I do also like thinking about ways to challenge how social media platforms are used. And I totally agree that something like Twitter, the lack of nuance, et cetera, doesn't lend itself to process oriented things. But I do, I'm already thinking, but there's probably ways that I could challenge that some like not necessarily like making sure it's every day or X amount of times a month, but like, if throughout this process, I do play through a game where something really clicks in a way that I find yeah. it really satisfying, like I can share that and I should oh, share hell that. Yeah. And maybe totally. it's more like and thinking of, but rethink, reshaping that as like, that's me sharing my progress, not like me sharing the numbers, I think is really exciting. Yeah. And that to me feels very different than you saying, I want to have like an accountability in my social media posting or like my influence or the mm. way I'm showing up on social media that I'm using that as my accountability. That is totally different than what you just said. It's like, well, when I feel excited about it, yeah, then I want to share that with my chess friends. Fuck yeah. Like yeah. definitely do that. The process can um, be shared and knowing and in, in a sense committing in some sense to sharing that gives me a kind of accountability that feels way better than yeah, committing amazing. to sharing the result. So I think that was my one I addition to your suggestion. I love it. Yeah, I really, really love that. I do think there's almost like a danger of saying, well, you know, social media doesn't really lend itself to this and doesn't quite have the nuance, but I still want to use it as like my external validation or my accountability Mm. in this way 
that I'm going to kind of try to tweak. Nah, this is just for the masses. This is for right. them. Right, and is... like align with my values. It's it's like the idea of like, oh, I'm going to, I don't like the system, but I'm going to change the system from within. Like, yeah, it never works. I think it's just way more likely for us to kind of get sucked into all of the negative consequences that we know exist in social media. So the way that you've described using it, JJ, I love. I think that's how I like to show up in the space mm. when I feel excited and I want to share something, I share it. That's very different than using it as my accountability. I think that's really actually hard to do for all of the systematic reasons that social media is really harmful for a lot of people. But the way that you've described it, I can really get on board with. And I just love the way you're thinking about it. Well, what a delightful conversation that I hope encourages other people to set goals in constructive ways. Don't forget to like and subscribe. <laughs> and if you want to have a session like this with me, you can pay me my normal rate and I will totally talk about chess goals with you. And that rate is $225 an hour. That is what people pay for an hour of my time to my clinic. I do not see a dollar of it as an intern. And soapbox. Wait, I've been paying the clinic money for these podcasts <laughs> and you haven't even been seeing it? You get the friend rate. Ah, uh, is it double? <laughs> it's double. <laughs> one, one. Yeah. As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest. Where two plus two equals five and the path leading out is only wide enough one, for listeners one. like you. Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia. We would be yeah. truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review. And tell all of your friends. Yeah, all of them. And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a five-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership yeah. to leechess.org. Unlocking all of their features. Even that? Especially that. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ChessFeelsPod. Oh, and if you didn't like what you heard, do not hesitate yeah. to message any feedback. No matter how critical or scathing. Directly to Mr. Dodgy, our social media manager, even though he doesn't know it. <laughs> at Chess Problem. One. Yeah.